0: Let's take a moment to uh, do what we often do on Sunday morning, and that's have a time of confession. So before we have the message, take just a few minutes and silently confess your sins to the Lord. Thank you lord for hearing our prayers and for cleansing us from all unrighteousness amen october 14th 1912 theodore roosevelt former president at that time was running for the nation's highest office again this time as an independent And on that evening, he was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to give a speech. And just leaving the Gilpatrick Hotel and walking to his car, he was shot at point blank. Normally, a shot like that, aimed at the heart, would have killed him. But it was a cold winter night, well, late fall, and Mr. Roosevelt had on a long overcoat, and in the pocket, over his heart, He had his eyeglass case, which was made of metal, and he had his speech for that night, which was gonna be two hours long, it was 50 pages, and it was folded in half. And the two of them together deflected the bullet just enough that it it entered his chest but did not touch any of his organs and was not life-threatening. And Mr. Roosevelt said, "Um, I don't wanna go to the hospital. He correctly diagnosed the fact that he was not in serious jeopardy. And instead he went to the auditorium, started his speech, and he announced to the crowd, I've just been shot. So I'm gonna make the speech a little, long, a little shorter than, than normal. And instead of speaking for two hours, he spoke for 53 minutes. Now, I've always been an admirer of Teddy Roosevelt, but I don't intend to speak <laughs> two hours or even, 50, even 53 minutes. So I say that as uh, an encouragement, but I do have things that God has laid on my heart that I think the Holy Spirit wants you to hear. So let's pray that we uh, have clarity of speech and zealousness of hearing. Father, thank you that you have given us this time for worship. Sunday morning, what a glorious day. We celebrate the resurrection of your son on Sunday, and there's no better way to celebrate than to be in a church building, hearing God's word, and seeing how it's applied to our lives. So thank you, Father. Thank you that we can share together. Thank you that your spirit will prompt us Thank you that we are eager to listen with our ears, with our heart, with our whole being. We pray in the name of our Savior, amen. Florida, for obvious reasons, is called the Sunshine State. State nicknames are sort of an interesting thing. Some come from history. Texas is called the Lone Star State because at one time They were a republic, a separate country, and had a flag with one star. Delaware is called the first state because it was the first state to adopt the Constitution. Some states emphasize geographical figures. Arizona, where I spent much of my young days, was and is known as the Grand Canyon State. Vermont is the Green Mountain State. Some states emphasize things that are grown there. Uh, Mississippi, the Magnolia State. Maine, the Pine Tree State. Georgia, of course, is the Peach State. Some states seem sort of named for their football teams, although I think it's the other way around. You have the Sooners from Oklahoma, and the uh, Cornhuskers from Nebraska, and the Iowa Hawkeyes. And some state names are very familiar, but we can't quite trace the roots of them. Everybody pretty much knows Indiana is the Hoosier state and Ohio is the Buckeye state. But a lot of people have no idea what a Buckeye is, let alone a Hoosier. And other states seem to be bathed in sarcasm. You can't drive into New Jersey from anywhere without going into an area that's just a a vast, not-so-charming industrial wasteland. And New Jersey leads the country in the percentage of its population moving to other states. It has done so for four years. And yet, it is called the Garden State. (laughs) And you have to be kind of a history of a geog- uh, student of geography, or maybe a contestant on Jeopardy to correctly identify the Beehive State and the Centennial State and the Equality State and the Peace Garden State. But there's one state name that everybody seems to know, and it's based on a stereotype of the residents that live there. People that wouldn't buy the proverbial snake oil unless they learned a little bit more about it, they said, in effect, don't just tell me something, show me. Well, the Apostle Paul probably did not have a future vision of the state of Missouri when he wrote the book of 2 Timothy, the letter to Timothy that we call 2 Timothy in our scripture. But Paul does a very good job of not just telling us some things, but he actually shows us through examples. Turn with me if you want to to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 3. Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And athletes cannot win a prize unless they follow the rules. And hard working farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Think about what I'm saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. We're in a war. Uh, And I'm not talking about the uh, conflict that's going on in Eastern Europe. We're in a spiritual war. and We've been in that war ever since the Garden of Eden. Sometimes when there's a war going on, there's sacrifices that have to be made. There are loved ones that are sent to foreign countries. Uh, There's rationing or, or lack of materials and supplies available to people. Sometimes it means not being able to worship freely. Being hunted down for assembling together in the Lord's house. This working out of the war takes a lot of different paths, but there is inherent suffering, as Paul wrote to Timothy. And at least two biblical truths stand out. The first one, all who live godly will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12. And the second one, we wrestle or we battle not against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers of the dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places. That's from Ephesians 6.12. Sounds like a war to me. Sometimes it's being denied basic rights just because you're a Christian. Sometimes it's being ridiculed for believing the world was actually created by an intelligent being. Or believing that every person is born either male or female and has absolutely no choice in the matter. Or believing that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry land, or that 5,000 men and their families were fed with two fish and five loaves of bread. Or believing that a man named Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and now is seated at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Paul reminds Timothy and by extension you and I that we're gonna suffer and therefore we should follow the example of a good soldier. Now if if you hadn't just read this passage and I were to ask you the, the purpose of a soldier, the main duty that he has, you might say, mm, to fight battles, or or to conquer the enemy, or to defend the nation, or protect the citizens. All these are worthy actions, and they're all often things that soldiers do, but the primary job, the primary duty, the primary responsibility of a soldier is to follow the orders given by his superior. And this is the second part of the example that Paul gives us of the soldier. Jesus acknowledged this principle of authority in Matthew chapter 8, where he had an encounter with a Roman centurion. And the centurion understood authority. I I know what authority is all about, said the centurion. I I tell this guy to go here, and he goes there. I, I tell this one under my command to do this, and he does that. And then he says, and I know you, Jesus, are under God's authority. And you can heal my servant if that's what you... Are told to do. And Jesus marveled at that understanding. But an even more enlightening passage we find in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul, king of Israel at that time, has been instructed to conquer the Amalekites and wipe them out completely. No prisoners, no bounty, no uh, spoils. Destroy everything men, women, children, animals. And we see Saul, a disobedient Saul, returning victorious from the battle. And who should he meet on the road but the prophet Samuel? Yep, proclaims Saul, did as I was told. And Samuel says, hmm. So what's this bleeding of sheep and blowing of cattle that I hear? Oh, that. <laughs> Saul just kind of shrugs his shoulders. That's just some animals that I, I, I took to sacrifice to the Lord. And Saul so is wondering, why is Samuel making such a big deal of this thing? Then Samuel hits King Saul with one of the clearest, strongest toughest, most striking statements in the entire Old Testament and New Testament and probably the concordance and maps and the notes at the bottom and the front page where it says Holy Bible. Okay, you know what it is, but here it is again. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And Saul lost his kingship over that. That one undeniable truth Obedience is better than sacrifice. It is better to obey than to sacrifice. So so why why is that so important? Didn't God institute the practice of sacrifice? After all, Samuel wasn't intending to make a non-animal sacrifice, uh, like Cain in the Garden of Eden, uh, a non-blood sacrifice that wasn't accepted. So what's the principle here that's so critical to life? Doesn't God like sacrifice? Well, yeah, at the right time, in the right place, at his direction, sacrifice can be a wonderful expression. However, listen carefully. Sacrifice, instead of obedience, is nothing short of rebellion. Rebellion. Sacrifice rather than obedience is saying, I'm gonna do it my way instead of his way. It's like relying on our own righteousness. And you know what God thinks of that? He plainly told us in Isaiah 64:6. 6, he thinks our attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags. When good deeds are done, for show, for display, and that's the word that's used here, when they're done for display, God says they're filthy rags. So when you look at it that way, you can understand why God wants our obedience wrapped in Jesus' righteousness, not in our own filthy rags. Final facet of the soldier... As an example, the soldier must be free from entanglements. When I served in the Army a long time ago, I was not in a combat zone. When 5 o'clock came, we could go where we wanted to, do whatever we wanted to, as long as we got back by 7 the next morning. But remember, we're in a war, and when you're in a combat zone, you don't stop looking for the enemy at 5 o'clock. The enemy does not keep daylight hours. One has to always be on the alert, always be on vigilant, always be on duty. Attack could come at any moment, and if you're not prepared, well, it wouldn't be very pleasant. Paul says, as soldiers, we are to leave the civilian world behind Leave it behind. We can't have our feet planted in two different places. In Colossians, Paul writes, set your affection on things above. Your affection is your heart, your, your mind, your spirit, your body, your whole being. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And Jesus' word of warning in Matthew six twenty four is that no one can serve two masters. Now, specifically here, he was talking about money, but the same principle is true. You can't serve two masters. You can't have a divided heart. You can't be a running back for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys at the same time, which coincidentally brings us to our next illustration, our next example, that of an athlete. And let's start as we talk about the athlete, that let's start with a pretty evident truth. Athletes are gifted. But then so are you. God gave gifts to the church. Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And the reason he gave them was to benefit the whole body. And the gifts differ because bodies have different needs. Paul says, you can't all be eyes, because then you can't hear. And you can't all be ears, because then you couldn't smell. Here we need eyes and ears and noses and a whole bunch of other body parts to be a complete and full body. And to function properly. And by all accounts, going back to football for a minute, Tom Brady was an excellent quarterback. Exceptional. But the Tampa Bay team could not have won the Super Bowl with 11 quarterbacks. Hmm? They needed running backs and wide receivers and non-offensive line. And don't think for a moment that the starting left tackle felt any less part of that winning team than the quarterback did. They all contribute because they all had gifts and were all used in a united way. Like the athlete, Paul uses as an example, we must use our gifts. Use our gifts that God has given us. If not, heed the warning Jesus gives in Luke nineteen twenty six. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken from them. So not only are to you use the gifts that are given to you, but the athlete tells us that you're given time to be prepared and equipped. There's a vacant lot behind the house where I live, and there's, um, it's kind of been made into a makeshift baseball field. And I like to watch the kids come from the neighborhood and play and practice. And there's one young man, I guess from looks, he's about mm, maybe 9 or 10, And he is head and shoulders a better player than everybody else. He he swings the bat like a pro. He throws like a pro. Now, I know his dad played college ball, so he probably taught him some things. But his secret, the reason that he's going to be undoubtedly on the high school baseball team when he gets that old, who knows beyond that. But his secret is he practices and practices and practices. In selecting leaders from a church body, Paul tells Timothy, don't lay hands suddenly on someone. Now, in 21st century language, that means watch out for the flash in the pan. You know, watch out for that guy who's up on the top one day and can't find him the next. It takes time to grow a leader. Everyone is obviously gifted, but those that have the special gifts... Sometimes it's a hindrance to them. In fact, there are some athletes that are so gifted, they think they're superior, and they don't even want to practice. They don't work on improvement. What was good enough to stand out in high school just barely gets you through college, and by the time you get to the NFL, well, I don't want to start a list of people that were talented but refused to learn and dropped out. Uh, it would take too long and <laughs> I want to get to the fellowship meal. <laughs> the reality is that an athlete <clears throat> has to spend a lot of time in preparation and in perform- before he performs. Training camp and practice throughout the week leads to maybe a couple hours of play on Sunday. And you ever think about Olympic athletes? They train for years, literally for years. And then maybe their sport is over in one afternoon. The athlete tells us, you can't just focus on performance. You must find your gifts and then prepare. Every year there are scores of athletes in every sport, in every level who say, I don't want to practice and learn all those those things and become better equipped. I just want to play. And sadly now many of them are working at McDonald's or selling insurance because they would not put the effort to become prepared to do what they were called to do. Okay, other side of the story, and here's a warning. A warning for Lake Morton Community Church. Are you still with me? Okay, put your shoes on, so if I step on your feet, you won't get hurt. I've never heard of an athlete say, I know I'm gifted, and I've practiced and practiced, and I know all the right moves, and... I know what to do in every situation, but I just don't want to play. I, I know I'm equipped, I'm prepared, but coach, please don't put me in the game. Let me sit here on the sidelines. You never hear that, do you? And if you're hearing the Holy Spirit right now, he may be saying to you, you know, he's talking to you. Okay, one more aspect about the athlete's life is an example for us. And Paul makes this very clear. The athlete must follow the rules. Now, I admit, not everybody, in fact, nobody, ever gets to the Hall of Fame by keeping the rules. You never hear a commentator say, He had just a so-so career, but man did he follow the rules. He'd go three or four or five games and never get a penalty. He never got thrown out of a game for breaking a rule. Doesn't happen that way. But you do have folks like Barry Bonds, who despite hitting more home runs than anybody that's ever played baseball in the US, is not in the Hall of Fame. And the reason his ticket to immortality didn't get punched is because he used a banned substance to improve his performance. He simply did not keep the rules. So he's on the outside looking in. And so are a lot of other folks. Sadly, we can look back and see lots of Christian leaders who've lost their testimony and lost their influence in the kingdom because they didn't follow the rules. Specifically, the rules about purity and about pride. Rules are important for the athlete. They're boundary lines on the football field. If you're running down the field and you step outside the line, your touchdown run's not going to count. And Paul is reminding us that the athlete is an example to us because rules are important. Not just on the athletic field, but in all of life. Doing nothing but keeping rules will not get you to heaven. If you stand before God on judgment day and, said, and say, mm, well, I tried to keep all the rules. God might say, okay, what about that time you went 38 in a 35-mile zone? Are you kidding? Three miles an hour? <laughs> okay, what about the, the, the time that you uh, lied on your resume? Well, that wasn't exactly a lie. That was just sort of an exaggeration. And besides, once I got the job, I tithed every week when I got my paycheck. Sounds remarkably like a sacrifice rather than obedience, doesn't it? Bottom line, James 2.10, The person who keeps all the law except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. All right then, so what's the purpose of rules? Rules, let's use the Ten Commandments as an example. Rules are not given to hinder you, but to protect you. The consequences of being an adulterer, a murderer, uh, having covetousness, far greater than a lot of people, most people realize. From the parents saying, look both ways before you cross the street, to this sign on the highway that says, no passing zone, stay in your lane. Rules are not given to confine us, but to protect us from harm. Harm that we can't always see. The athlete teaches us about gifts, preparation, and rules of the game. So what does the farmer teach us? Well, the first thing that we learn from the farmer is something we've all known ever since we were little sprouts. The farmer plants. The whole cycle for farming begins with the spring planting. But know this, planting is not haphazard. There's a method, a plan for every farmer. The farmer determines what he's going to harvest, and then he plants accordingly. If he wants corn, he doesn't plant beans. If he wants strawberries, he doesn't plant watermelon. And planting has to be in the right place. He doesn't plant at the bottom of a creek. He doesn't plant along a well-trod path. If plants need sunlight, and most of them do, he doesn't plant under a shade tree. And he plants in an orderly fashion. He plants the seeds in a row. This makes it easier for the plants to grow, easier to water, easier to weed, easier to harvest. There's order in the planting. And the application to our Christian walk, okay, God has made us plants, in effect. He has chosen us. And he puts us where we can best grow. He expects that we live lives under his direction, Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, it, it's miracle that's in all four of the gospel accounts. And we know about the little boy with two fish and five loaves of bread. But there's a detail that Luke mentions that before Jesus fed the crowd, he had them all sit down and then sit in groups of 50. There was order there, there before the miracle was performed. So, okay, Galatians 6, 7. Don't be misled. You will always harvest what you plant. Now, is this a promise or a warning? Yes. Yes, it's both. It's a warning that if you plant negatively, that's what you'll get back. If you plant criticism, you'll get criticism. If you plant jealousy, you'll get jealousy. If you plant distrust, you'll get distrust. But it's also a promise. Plant love and you'll reap love. Plant acceptance and you'll reap acceptance. Plant kindness and kindness will overflow back to you. And also look at the next characteristic of the farmer that's held up for us as an example. Galatians 6, 9 says, Do not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, you will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Paul realizes there is a strong possibility of growing weary. Otherwise, why give the warning? He warns Timothy, and the word of the Lord reminds us and warns us, Don't get weary. Don't get tired of well-doing that child that you're praying for, that, that, that mate that you're lifting up before the Lord, that neighbor you're being extra kind to, the harvest may be a lot closer than you realize. Don't give up. Now is not the time to give up. Losing heart might mean losing the harvest. Don't give up just before the harvest comes. Well, Living here in Florida... We all ought to know how long it takes fruit to grow. It doesn't happen overnight. As the new year starts and the citrus crop ripens and the last vestiges are picked, the new beautifully scented blossoms appear. And they're there for a short while and then they're, they miraculously become a tiny little piece of fruit, smaller than the tip of your little finger. But sunshine and water, and most of all, patience will see that little embryo become a full-grown orange or grapefruit by the same time next year. Don't expect new Christians to produce full-grown fruit. It takes time, but it will happen. The spirit will work. Fruit will appear. If there's a connection to life, it will appear. On the other hand, if you see someone that's well advanced in their years of supposedly walking with the Lord and there's no fruit there, you have reason to be suspect. The farmer has patience, but as you know, patience is not an easy thing. Mm, it is not. Most of us want something yesterday. The next best time would be today. Tomorrow. <laughs> That's way, way, way too far off. I want it now. I don't want to rest. I don't want to take it easy. I want to do whatever I can to speed the process up. I don't want to just trust the Lord of the harvest. I want to do something. Sound familiar? <laughs> I'm indebted to my daughter for showing me something in Psalm 23 that I try to remember when I'm in a hurry for God to act, which is pretty nearly every day. The psalm is, in one of the older versions, says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. Oh, there it is. The shepherd has to make me lie down. We have a tendency to want to just keep going and going and going. But sometimes, like Elijah in the wilderness, God feeds us and then he has a time of rest. We have to lie down. We have to take it easier. So no wonder Paul admonishes us, don't grow weary in in time of well-being, well-doing. Grow weary when you don't build in periods of rest, but don't grow weary in well-doing. That's where we're likely to wear ourselves out. No one ever says, I'm doing so many bad things, I'm just getting tired of it. <laughs> yeah, we get weary from well-doing, from well-being, from doing those good things. And we need to rest when appropriate and have patience all the time. And the last thing the farmer teaches us, by far the best, the farmer produces well, actually, it's more like Paul said about um, the conversion of lost souls. He said, I water, and I mean, I plant, and Apollo waters, and Lord gives the increase. And that's kind of the way it works for the farmer. He plants, and he waters, but God gives the increase. And in the end, there's an abundance. There's lots to share. The farmer gets the first fruits. The farmer gets the biggest blessings. And this may sound like a cliché, but you know that it's true. When you do good to somebody, the blessing you get is sometimes just as big, maybe even bigger, than the person you're ministering to. So here's a quick recap of sowing and reaping. Number one, you always reap what you sow. You always get what you plant. Abe Lincoln said you can fool all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time. But sometimes you can't fool God at all. <laughs> well, he didn't say that last part. I just made that up. But you know, it's true. You can't fool God. He's not mocked. He's not deceived. He's not confused. He's not, you can't pull the wool over his eyes. He knows because he looks at the heart. Scripture says man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. So he sees what's really there. Secondly, you always reap in proportion to what you sow. If you reap a lot, if you you sow a lot, you're going to reap a lot. If you sow a little bit, you're only going to reap a little bit. And third, reaping comes at a different time than sowing. It isn't that you sow one day and the next day you reap. But you have to wait. You have to be patient. Plant what you want and then wait to reap and then be patient. Well, God does his part. And if you do, you'll get to enjoy the first blessing. That's what the farmer tells us. Okay. Wait a minute. Three examples. Wait a minute. I know the soldier and the athlete and the farmer are given as examples, but doesn't it say somewhere that Jesus is supposed to be our example? Well... I'm reminded of what a former pastor of mine used to say. If you found that in the Bible, better put it back because it's not there now. Jesus has an example, just an example? I don't, I don't think so. Can you copy his virgin birth? A little late for that now, isn't it? Can you live a sinless life like he did? Didn't think so. How many people have you raised from the dead and how many have you cured of their blindness as a testimony to the gospel you're preaching? Mm Mm-hmm. Altogether, none. Are you ready to be crucified for saying that you're the Son of God? No? Good choice. So what exactly do folks mean when they say, Jesus is my example? What they mean is that they are more or less trying to be a moral person who cares about others in somewhat the same manner that Jesus did and do you know who talks about Jesus being an example i think you do but i'm going to tell you anyway do you know who talks about Jesus as being an example unbelievers that's who the person who's trying to please god with good acts with good living and by the way you remember what god calls those good acts filthy rags the person who's trying to please God by living a good life, to him, Jesus is an example of what I should act like. To much of the world, Jesus is kind of like the original hippie. It's just love, baby, you know? And yet they overlook the most important verse on love in the entire Scripture, John three sixteen. Jesus as an example? No. When a person stands before judgment seat and God says, tell me about your life, and you tell the Almighty, I just tried to follow Jesus' example. And God might say, hey, and how did that work out? Well, pretty good most of the time, but I'm not perfect. Not perfect, huh? Guilty. Next. Listen to what Tim Keller says about Jesus in his book, Jesus the King. The world thinks of Jesus as just a good example, which is a much more rational, palatable image than Jesus as Lamb, Lord, and Savior. Jesus Christ as only an example will crush you, You'll never be able to live up to it, but Jesus as the Lamb, will save you. To the believer, Jesus is more than an example. Yes, He is the Son of God. Yes, He is Lord of all. Yes, He's all of these things. But on a very personal level, he is life itself. Listen to Galatians 2:20 portion of it says it is no longer I who live and live but Christ lives in me so I live in this earthly body by trusting the son of God doesn't sound like just an example does it or look again at the uh, verses that we read for pre- uh, preparation of worship and then look at the next verse in John which is not printed there but I'll read it to you yes I am the vine, and you are the branches Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is is important that we have good role models, that we can teach us spiritual truths. But in the final analysis, the Christian life is not just following good examples, as important as that might be, but it's letting God's Son live in us and through us. The soldier tells us we're in a battle. We're to set world interests aside. We are to please our superior officer by following his orders. And The athlete tells us we are given gifts and we're to use them, we're to take time to prepare and equip, and then we must compete, but we must do it within the groundwork of rules. And the farmer tells us We're to be busy planting, and then patiently waiting, and in the end, we'll be the first to benefit from the crop that we have raised. All of these are good examples. All of these have one or more characteristic that probably spoke to most of us this morning. Yet none of these are more than just examples. But there's one who says, I am the way. The truth and the life. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. I am the true vine. And you are the branches. And without me, you can do nothing. So abide in me. And the one who says all that is not an example, but he's life itself. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much for your word that is full of meaning for us today, even though written thousands of years ago. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is who he says he is, and he's not just an example, but he's our life. Without him, we can do nothing thank you. We pray joyfully in his name. Amen.